Hello, and welcome to the Women Who Code podcast. How easily should one, you know, understand the decision and its reasoning? We need, we need, you know, accountability there. Probably, you know, one one core principle would be coverage. You know, which data is, is needed and how comprehensive should it be in order to make decisions in production environments? Today, we have a talk entitled Women Leadership in AI featuring Christina Canotti, Professor of Computer Science at the University of British Columbia, Holly Peck, Vice President of Special Projects at Soul Machines and the Founding Director of Women Who Code Vancouver, Bethany Udmans, PhD, Director of Computer Science and Teaching Professor at Northeastern University, and Marjorie Moore, Chief Executive Officer of ESI. The first question I have is like a general question. As a female leader, um, one like what's been most significant barrier in your career or if not what has been like um, the most helpful stepping stone and I'm going to give the first talking stick to Christina. Thank you. Uh, It's a very good question. Um, So I have to say that so first of all I I am from Italy you probably guessed that from my accent but um, interestingly uh, computer science so I have a degree in computer science from from Italy and there uh, when I uh, when I was doing my undergrad and master's there, um, the ratio male-female was 50-50. So um, at the time, I have to say, you know, as a, as a student at the university, I never quite felt um, any difficulties or discriminations due to the fact, you know, to, to gender issues, right? And then... Um, um, for my PhD, I was at the University of Pittsburgh. Um, and again, because mine was a quite um, interdisciplinary program, it was, a, it was called the Intelligent um, Systems Program, but it was a combination of um, uh, computer science, um, cognitive science, medical informatics. So again, it was not your typical computer science department, which might, you know, feel a little bit daunting for a female student. Um, and, and then coming to UBC in, in a traditional computer science department, um, right away, um, I, I, you know, there, there were a lot of initiatives in place for, you know, as I mentioned early, earlier, trying to increase the number of uh, um, female in computer science and students. So again, in my department, I have to say, I, I never really experienced barriers that are uh, due to being female. Um, despite the fact that, of course, the female professors are f- far fewer than the male professors, but still the culture is very much inclusive. So I just have to say that from that point of view, I've always been very lucky, um, but, um, you know, I, I, and I, I think perhaps the barrier sometimes has been me, like sometimes feeling insecure and not um, uh, comfortable in speaking up, right? Which is something that then I learned to do. But um, despite the fact that the environment was quite uh, welcoming, sometimes I felt that it was me who was preventing myself from um, from being more proactive and me being more assertive. So um, I feel that sometimes, and, and, and you know, could be just personality. And I don't know if it's uh, gender related, but sometimes I feel that um, we, we, you know, we might need help at that level 
Um, and there are environments that are not as welcoming. So that's a totally different issue. But when even in situations that could be more uh, conducive to, you know, feeling inclus you know, included and uh, respected, uh, sometimes there are barriers there due to perhaps self-perception or, you know, um, self-esteem that could, uh, could be in the way. Sounds like, Christina, it's, it's a very good way of describing like the imposter syndrome and recognizing that it's not only the environment, it's like, it, it's yes. your mindset. So, yeah, yeah. Um, I, I see Bethany's unmuted. Would she like the next talking stick? Yeah, I was just going to say, I think that's so on, on point. The I think that um, for myself, it wasn't necessarily other people so much as realizing like, just because I'm not the exact same as that other person. So I was in a lab with, um, I, I wasn't as fortunate as Christina. Um, you know, I was in a lab with all men and I had a different perspective. I was a lot more interdisciplinary um, and and going in and doing machine learning and, and saying, well, what about the real world? What about putting this in action? And people are like, what are you talking about? We're doing simulators, we're doing math, you know? And my perspective was always different and I always felt like maybe that wasn't enough or maybe I was wrong. Um, and it was only after you know, succeeding, honestly, and then being like, oh, oh, actually, my perspective is unique. And actually, I bring something else to this table. But it was definitely and it still happens where it's just like, I'm surrounded by other people that think something else. And, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, and I think that that's something that um, I, I try to instill in the students that each unique perspective is actually valuable. Uh, just because you're not thinking the same as somebody else doesn't mean that it's less. Thank you, Bethany. Yeah, just recognizing the group think like when it's helpful and like when you have to like learn to put on a different thinking hat. Yeah, uh, pass the talking stick to Marjorie. Sure. I uh, did my master's in environmental data management, so very technical. And uh, after hitting the glass ceiling multiple times, it was quite easy to leave my cushy corporate job, start my own AI startup. But the biggest barrier I found is just there's a natural bias against women raising money. So I think I probably had to do twice as many pitches as others. I always had a good cadre of experienced men around me, but it was always me doing most of the pitches. And you just, even, it was just so overt in some pitches where, you know, in one case there was about 20 people pitching and about 80% of the women were asked to come back up and ask and be asked harder questions. And it was just so overt. I was just like looking around and we're like, wow, <laughs> everybody else see this? Okay. So that has been a struggle, but we did it, we made it and we exited. So it all worked out, but I just, you know, you can do it you can lead your own company. You just got to work extra hard. Thank you, Marjorie. I'll hand the talking stick to Holly. Yes. Well, I have a very, hmm, let's see, love, uh, love, hate relationship with this, uh, this question um, because, um, you know, uh, fostering more inclusive safe spaces was actually the impetus for starting Women Who Code. <laughs> I felt quite bluntly that there uh, weren't really um, spaces in the meetup community, the technical meetup community for, for women, or they were, I was like, where are they? Um, and actually, uh, I, I still remember to this day going to a prominent tech uh, meetup uh, after I had, um, you know, graduated from a, a kind of a engineering boot camp. I was bright eyed and bushy tailed and I went and it was like 99% men. And I was like, okay, this is a little strange, um, you know, hmm, oh. Oh, I wasn't expecting this. Um, and, and, you know, there I encountered um, some of the, you know, hallmarks of what, you know, can be categorized as the toxic bro-y uh, culture, which I just felt was, you know, maybe okay in that context, but really not welcoming um, to a diverse 
um, you know, a roster of people. And I think, you know, we really need to broaden the cat, you know, the label of diversity um, to not just mean gender diversity, but, you know, um, gender identity and socioeconomic background and ethnicity and everything. Um, and it's becoming, you know, more and more people are realizing it's a huge asset actually in product development um, because having a diverse um, collection of, of ideas and people actually allows um, the resurfacing and acknowledgement of um, uh, of, uh, um, of, uh, what's it called? Not bias, but, um, oh my God, I'm blanking. Blind, blind spots. Spot? Yes. Blind spots. <laughs> the other B word. Sorry. It's been a long day. I had a long, uh, many engineering standups today. So apologies. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think, um, I do agree with what's been said, you know, there is this imposter syndrome. Um, and I, every single woman engineer, um, at least from a non-traditional background, like myself has felt it, um, in big corporate culture. Um, it is, it is us. Um, but also it's, I've seen, you know, unconscious bias, uh, in fundraising. Um, I've seen it in promotions. Uh, I've seen it in the way people interpret, um, assertive behavior from women. Um, and then, you know, map that back to, oh, you know, she's just, she's just, you know, a bitch, or she's just like, you know, uh, totally ridiculous or emotional. I mean, even the way we describe behavior, uh, you know, cross-gender is different. So um, it, I've seen that, um, but, you know, one of my goals as a AI engineering director is, you know, um, you're only as good as your team and um, you have to pull people up, you know, that's your role um, once you get to a certain point. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but I have a lot of opinions on this, so <laughs> I'll stop. It's now. very informative. Thank you. Uh, that helps lead into my next question. And um, so the question is, and this might be a bit of a, what's the word, Sally Jam. Um, from your experiences, like obviously women who code like very inclusively promote empower women, but how does a female leader like work with or, with or collaborate with like the upper VPs or CEOs to promote an equal employment organization in historically male dominant industries. Um, does anyone want to go first? Marjorie? Okay. Well, that's a good question. I'm trying to think of what I did over the years and I'm pretty outspoken and loud spoken. And um, I, I think I've always been able to put my ideas forward and, and I have a consensus approach to projects, uh, trying to make sure everybody's voices are heard and everybody comes along and always to listen to the quietest voice because they're often the most intelligent. <laughs> I'm very loud, so slam myself there. But uh, in a male dominated industry, for sure, um, it, it helps to be kind of a little, you know, forthright and, and, and put yourself forward with confidence. And always to bring new ideas to the table, that usually gets a lot of traction. Um, and I think that's kind of been a bit of my secret sauce. And, and just knowing the industry and always going the extra mile and being on committees and working on uh, being you know, on, a, on different boards and uh, doing volunteer work, just continuing to focus on, on the path, no matter what, but trying to do it with, a, with my tribe, if you will. But it's, it's always difficult. Um, the glass ceilings that I hit, usually I would, you know, get multiple promotions and then it would get to like the director of VP level and there'd be, you know, a whole bunch of guys and I would lose out and I'd leave the company <laughs> the third time I started my own company and with an eye to make it as diverse as possible. We're probably about 40% diverse. Um, it fluctuates. It is hard to find talent. We're in Vancouver, so we're very lucky. 
Uh, so, you know, we have large data labeling and large ML team and, uh, you know, just growing a sales and marketing force right now. We're only about 25 people, but I really try to keep my eye on that. And programs like this, I think, are critical for more women to come forward and feel comfortable in this industry. Should I pass a stocking, talking stick to Bethany? Sure. Uh, so, yeah, I, I mean, where I am right now, um, I, I luckily have a fantastic team, but previously I was not so lucky. Um, and I, I the, the approach that I had was this twofold. One was um, I kind of, I was with a bunch of, um, I'll, I'll just say it, older engineers. So they were just of a particular mindset um, and they completely underestimated me, underestimated me as I say that so well. Um, and it was just, okay, fine. You know, you don't think I'm going to do anything. That's fine. Um, and then I was able to, to find, like, like you were saying, find the people that, uh, that agreed with what you were trying to do, make some momentum till I got to the point where it was clear that it, something was going to happen. Um, I also, um, for the people that weren't stuck and they weren't, but they didn't necessarily notice what was happening. Um, cause you have some people like, I don't see a problem here, <laughs> you know, and it's just so, and then you have these talks and then just like, well, she was wearing something she shouldn't have been wearing or, you know, those ridiculous conversations. Um, and so, you know, you kind of don't even, what I, I didn't even bother with them, but I, I took the other people that, that didn't necessarily see the harm that was happening, but I would, weren't complicit in it and, and say, you know, maybe we should look at our hiring practices. What sort of things are we doing? How are we, uh, we our retention was really low. Um, and just recognizing that and then, and then saying, okay, how can we change our practices because our students would benefit from it and our, you know, and, and our outreach would be better. Um, and so, so then, you know, then showing the results to the leadership team uh, was, was really quite helpful. And then, then I became their boss. And, and then it was, you know, then I had another stick that I had and it was just like, now all of a sudden I, I, I was able to say, no, here's the practices that, that we're going to put in place and, and here's how we are going to move forward. And yeah, they'll get mad and yeah, they'll call you names and say, you're too assertive, but um, then you can stand up for the people that, that don't, uh, that, that are maybe more, more quiet. Cause I'm, I'm fortunate that I'm, I am a loud and aggressive woman. So that really helps. Um, but then recognizing like, because I have this ability, I, I have this confidence and I've, I've had this experience that I can help others that, that maybe don't come from the same culture that allows that. And so it allows you to, to, to bring more people with you. Thank you, Bethany. Uh, hand the talking stick to Christina. So um, obviously the dynamics in a big university are different than in a company. So it, you don't necessarily have this uh, direct interactions with, um, well, you have your department head, for instance, but uh, the power relationship is quite different. So, um, and again, policies uh, tend to be, uh, the broader policies tend to be decided more at the university level. Uh, but if, of course, you know, it's important to, um, to make your voice heard at that level as well. And uh, one, one, one example that I, I want to bring up is, um, again, UBC uh, on paper always had, um, you know, very good intentions in terms of uh, supporting uh, women and uh, um, students and female faculty members in having careers that would be um, comparable to the uh, male colleagues. But for instance, for the longest time, there was this uh, issue of daycare, for instance. Uh, daycare in Vancouver, I was 
again, I don't want to brag about Italy, but <laughs> in Italy, you need daycare, you get it. Okay. Um, here, I found that it was amazing that even if you paid a lot of money, which is what you have to do if you want to put your children at UBC daycare, you still had to wait for many months without even knowing for how long you had to wait um, because that's the way it is. It's a long story, but um, it, it was becoming a real issue. And also the daycare hours were 8.30 to 5. And uh, you had to pick up your child at five. And, you know, um, as faculty member, you don't work eight to five. <laughs> and you don't rest on weekends, right? There are always things going on. And, um, you know, it was a serious, uh, a very serious issue um, that for the longest time, people were trying to bring up in different um, settings in the university, but it was hard to um, make any concrete initiative just because it's... Um, Again, it's such a big university, and unless there is a, a specific intention at the higher level to to go in that direction, um, it's um, it's difficult to change things. Um, but you know, eventually, as uh, um, you know, as the years progressed, I think there has been at least. Uh, there have been initiatives to build more daycares. The problem is not solved. It's still a big problem. And I think it's more of a problem, I guess, at the province level where the, in general, there's early childhood um, care. It's, um, I don't know, it's just um, not necessarily well organized for um, supporting women, you know, at different levels. They, can, they really want to have, uh, you know, a full-time career. Um, but, you know, it, it's something that it's, um, it's a problem and it has been for a long time. And again, it's getting a little bit better because in the end, you know, there were initiatives and women were trying to, female faculty members were trying to voice their concerns. And, uh, but, you know, it can, be, it can be a struggle, especially in that kind of uh, large public um, organization where um, reaching the top uh it, it's hard in terms of making your voice heard um all the way up it can be hard yeah thank you christina yeah. i'm hand the talking stick over to holly she have any other yes. opinions to add um yeah i think i'll answer this as a hiring manager and then also as you know uh, an employee at a tech company um so ultimately as a hiring manager i think numbers don't lie uh, data never lies and a statement without data is just an opinion so ultimately um i have um some pretty um you know I, I, important dni metrics in terms of hiring that i strive to achieve um when building my engineering team and i'm very proud to say that um you know since joining soul machines i I mean, I expanded my, my team 300% during the pandemic. So that was crazy. <laughs> many Zoom calls, many late nights. But I actually grew, um, you know, our, our engineering team to be 60% um, uh, women, 60% uh, women of color, um, very uh, diverse uh, in terms of um, gender identity as well. Um, I'm also, you know, a, a queer engineer. Uh, my partner's trans. So that is ultimately very, very important to me. Um, uh, just, but I know I'm not, you know, I, this is just, you know, this is just my experience. I know that it's not like this across the board, but, um, I, you know, I, I do feel like I can make a difference and I can make an impact. And I, I did. Um, so that's ultimately what I, cause I feel like it's really important, um, you know, to have diverse, um, engineers, you know, um, pushing different code to production. I think it makes for a better product uh, and a better uh, team as well. Um, for, 
you know, answering this question um, in terms of being a, an employee at a tech company, um, I would give some advice. Um, I would give some, some career advice would look like this, you know, have resolve, um, be hungry, um, grow your toolkit, uh, find your champion, find your champion. This is really important. Your boss doesn't necessarily only have to be your champion. It's really often good to go, um, you know, seek a champion, um, seek a mentor outside of your department, um, get that critical feedback to just grow and evolve. Um, and, you know, if, if there is a kerfuffle, um, always bring it back to the work. You know, the work doesn't lie. Um, you can say, you know, here is what I've done. Here, here are the outcomes I've produced. Um, let's talk about the work. Bring it back to the work. Bring it back to the work. That's really important. Um, and also just don't listen to the haters. You know, people, you'll walk into a room and some people will say you can't do it. Well, don't listen to them, you know, um, and just keep, keep going. Um, so that's kind of how I would answer that question. You're on mute. Thank you. No, I can do it too. I've been on mute. <laughs> um, thing from my uh, researching, uh, what I found the difference between AI, machine learning, deep learning is AI aims to build machines which are capable of thinking like humans. Um, ML aims to build machine learning through data so they can solve problems. And DL aims to build neural networks that automatically discover patterns for future detections. So I just want the speakers to keep in mind, like answering when I'm asking their specific industry question, you know, what do you mean um, when you say AI? And I'll give the first uh, talking stick to Marjorie. Uh, her question, in addition to that is, how is the industry unfamiliar with AI responding to essays or, you know, a new like companies, like in a new field, like products? Mm -hmm. Good question. So we're machine learning and specifically NLP. So we use uh, obviously the big language models out there, but then we fine tune it with our own language models. And we have our own team of data labelers in multiple languages. So, uh, so machine learning is kind of where we're at. And uh, I determined a number of years ago that perhaps NLP was out of the lab and could be applied to this problem. And the problem we have solved is, uh, is the the manual data transfer that comes along with reading regulatory documents, so permit, uh, regulation, and every corporation has to have permits and regulations and standards they have to follow. And at the moment, a human has to read those tens of thousands of pages with a pretty high error rate and inconsistent interpretation, which I think erodes um, environmental compliance and sustainability overall. And it's a multi-billion dollar cost to the bottom line. So NLP, uh, we use machine learning because we're teaching the machine to recognize what uh, requirement is. What do I have to do out of hundreds of pages? And based on myself and my co-founder's experience working in environmental health and safety for 20, 30 years, we're able to teach the algorithms to do just that with a curated output that um, any corporation that has a permit or people or a footprint anywhere, any type, any size would need our service. So it's kind of revolutionary. And it, we came out in 2018 with a prototype and in 2019 first kind of showed it to, the, to our industry at conferences. Remember that when we actually had conferences. 
And uh, I called the company EHS AI because, which I get slammed for a lot in the AI community, but it was what I needed to do to get people walking up and down the aisles, get their attention about what we were doing. So two years ago, there was lots of questions about, well, what is it? What are you doing? Where are you, you know, where are you getting the data? How accurate is it? How do you train it? Like, what are you actually doing? It seems like magic. I don't know. Is there, is there people behind the scenes doing it manually? overseas or something like that. So overcoming first, just that it wasn't magic, that it was well-trained models, the output was accurate based on decades and decades of experience um, doing this thing over and over again. And slowly over the last two years, people have become very familiar with it, very comfortable with it. And in our field in environmental health and safety, there's a lot of data analytics and analytic, analytics tools that kind of mine um, incident data, for example. So that's brought a lot of value looking back years at your incident data, trying to save lives. So AI is kind of creeping in everywhere that it, where a corporation might want to mine their data lakes. And so it's been easier and people are more familiar with it. And they really see that the accuracy we produce is superior uh, to a human uh, in that kind of volume. So it's, it was kind of a hard go at the beginning. But with the name and persistence and a proof uh, with the product, we were able to overcome some of those barriers. Thank you, Marjorie. That's very informative. I know it's like when you're explaining, oh, you don't have to do like reading through like huge pile of documents. And that would have been helpful like when when I was like an English literature student <laughs> reading all the different books. It's like, okay, I just had to find this one citation. So, yeah, thank you. Um, I'm going to, let's see, so many tabs open. Uh, hand the talking stick to Christina. Um, so in addition to keeping in mind, like, what do you mean by when you say AI? Uh, my question, try to tailor to your field. If it's like, there's a better question to ask or answer, like totally feel free to like oh, contribute that. Great question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, oh, my, oh I, I just want to say the specific industry question I had for you um, is how do you approach uh, innovating uh, in two very like disparate areas? like human computer interaction or AI or machine learning. Uh, but if there's like another um, point you want to discuss on, that's totally okay. Can I answer the previous yes. point we were making? What is AI and... Uh, yeah, and the then the industry specific question. Yes, and it's okay. been a long day. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so, you know, I, this, uh, this, this question of what is AI, it, it's a great question. It's a daunting one. I don't think anybody has a clear answer. What I always tell my students when I teach my introduction to AI course is that there, you know, there, there have been uh, four general uh, schools of thought in terms of, you know, how to approach AI. One is the one that you mentioned, right? Building uh, systems that can think like humans. Uh, but then there is also uh, building systems that can think um, rationally, okay, which is humans don't always do, right? And then there is the same definition on the acting dimension, because just thinking, uh, you know, doesn't take you far when it comes to acting in the world, right? So there is also think acting like humans and acting rationally. So these are four different areas of research in AI. And specifically the one thinking like humans is more related to cognitive science and cognitive psychology, where you really try to create intelligent agents that use mechanisms that mimic the mechanisms that human um, cognition relies on, right? Uh, but um, you don't need to have that to have intelligent behavior, or rational behavior, because you can also have uh, 
say, machine learning driven um, uh, systems that don't really, are not really based on um, any cognitive science principles and still have behaviors that can be defined as intelligent, right? So these are sort of like, um, and, and, and I really appreciate all these views are all um, very uh, respectable and different people see AI from that perspective and it's, uh, it's no right or wrong, right? It's just how you want to approach it from a research and innovation point of view. Um, and, you know, I, I would say deep learning is a type of machine learning. So it's everything related to learning from data as opposed to uh, reasoning and acting based on knowledge and first principles, right? Which is the other approach, which is the consider the old fashioned AI approach. Um, but one thing that I want to mention um, that I think is very, very, very important is that the last few years, there has been an you know, incredible enthusiasm and uh, for uh, data-driven approaches, machine learning approaches for the right, you know, for good reasons, because when you have enough data, there are certain tasks that these techniques can really do uh, really well, right? Predictive tasks, uh, pattern recognition tasks. Um, but even the most passionate advocates of uh, machine learning are now recognizing that by itself, um, intelligent behavior that is just based on data um, cannot go that far, right? So the right approach is really in the middle where you use data and that's what we do, right? I mean, learning is part of the intelligence. As humans, we learn, and that's you know, it's you know, one reason why we are considered intelligent beings. But it's not the only thing that we do, right? Um, you know, it's not the only aspect of of uh, human intelligence. Um, so, bringing the data driven approaches and you know, I'm going to call them knowledge based approaches together, it's really something that's now becoming you know, again, the focus of a lot of the um, more advanced AI research, um, acknowledging that again, data-driven is going to be, is, is there and it can have amazing results. But especially when it comes to this idea of human-centered AI, right? Uh, this concept of explainability is becoming also very important to have these machines that can actually act in an environment where they can justify their behavior. So that humans who need to interact with these machines can really understand what's going on, understand when this machine should be trusted, but also understand when no, they should not, right? The only way if these machines can somehow explain what's happening. And it's really hard when you have um, a ginormous uh, deep learning model that has you know <laughs> thousands of parameters that not even the model designers know what they mean. Right. So it is a big, you know, it, it is a big issue. There's interpretability and explainability of AI models is really becoming, again, one of the um, hottest research topics, because without that, it's going to be very difficult to do a, you know, to create AI systems that can really become part of our daily lives. And that brings back the idea of innovation, right, in terms of uh, applications that can really be you know, products, um, it, you know, we do need to have that sort of level of transparency that will enable these artifacts to be um, accepted, used, but also accepted at a level that will make it, you know, human AI interaction really like a winning card. Exactly. Like I've, I know, I think people are more used to using say Siri or Cortana or Alexa because uh, we had Rosie from the Jetsons. Um, 
in the cartoon oh, shows. Sorry, I used the last because we had oh. one. Uh, we had the Rosie robot maid in the Jetson cartoon show. So we're like, okay, yeah, robots can help us in our day-to-day tasks. That's why we accept maybe Alexa or Cortana. Um, right. Now. But I, I don't remember, know. right, that even Siri, uh, I mean, now my daughter's grown up, but for the longest time, breaking Siri was there, you know, uh, was something that they really loved to do. But then in the end, they got bored because it was really easy to break Siri. Yeah. <laughs> this is a good segue um you're still not approaching you know at all uh human level uh, natural language communication right so they're doing amazing things i don't want to dismiss what what is happening now right but it's also important not to create unrealistic hype as sometimes the news are doing yeah. right we've seen a lot of that I agree with that, Christina. It's it's a lot of information. Now you could just like you said, you're a teacher. You could go on like you know for maybe two hour lecture on on the material. But I really appreciate you're able to like condense it down for us. <laughs> but this is also a good segue. Um, hand the talking stick to Holly. Uh, so her question is, what is the role of design thinking in AI um, in relation to her work at Soul Machines? Yeah, I, I think so, Christina, what you just said was just like an explosion um, of goodness. And I just want to uh, echo exactly what you said, because it's um, direct, directly relational uh, or related rather to, the, to this answer. So when you talk about um, kind of design first principles, well, you know, we have to or AI is a design language. Um, we have to really kind of define some some concepts here. Um, so, you know, kind of design a design language is probably some kind of standard way to you know, communicate a set of concepts so people don't have to relearn things over and over again. And, and designing a comprehensive design language for AI would probably entail you know, defining a set of tools or techniques that could standardize and improve um, how we interface with you know, ML technology you know, in a way that is human-centric, right? That's important. Um, and I actually don't think that many, um, you know, ML companies have like a core set of um, first principles around uh, the ML systems they, they designed, which I think is really important. Um, and be, and it's, it's important because ultimately, you know, all AI systems are decision-making systems, right? Um, so we need to define <laughs> uh, kind of, you know, um, you know a, a core set uh, of first principles around the outcomes of these decision-making systems, because in production that could, you know, snowball into, you know, really crazy scenarios, especially, you know, if ML models are biased and making decisions on the livelihood or future of, of people. I mean, we know predictive policing is really, really dangerous. There's been a lot of hype around uh, bias uh, and racism in um, facial recognition technology. I mean, this is really, this is, this is fundamental. This is really important. So I think, to answer your question, I mean, I think it, it, it's really coming back to, you know, what would be the core principles or first principles around designing decision-making systems? And I don't think that's talked about, frankly, enough. But to give you, you know, um, some, a few that, you know, have already been mentioned, you know, interpretability, explainability, transparency, fundamental, you know, like how, how easily should one, you know, understand the decision and its reasoning? We need, we need you know, accountability there. Probably, you know, one one core principle would be coverage. You know, which data is needed and how comprehensive should it be in order to make decisions in production environments. Um, another one would probably be, uh, you know, salience. Um, so, 
how surprising or bold or unexpected should this decision, should these decisions be? And then malleability, which Christina kind of mentioned, uh, you know, decisions, how should, how can decisions evolve um, over time uh, and based on what? Um, so, you know, this is, these, these concepts are really important. Um, and I actually don't really think that many people are, are, you know, developing a core set of design first principles when deploying ML systems. But I think because technology is built by humans for humans, probably should be more, uh, more well considered. Um, and, and so that's kind of a call to action there. Um, but you know, at, at Soul Machines, we are, we are a human machine cooperation company, right? We build digital humans to make, to humanize computing surfaces, to humanize computing. Um, and we're very, ultimately our, our, you know, our technology is human centric, but also humanoid. We are developing humanoid machine interfaces. So there's a little bit of like a meta, <laughs> meta thing going on there. Um, but we are ultimately human centric. So we are, we are tackling these questions. We're developing, you know, design first principles and it, you know, uh, and the ethics involved uh, really in deploying production level ML systems um, with our clients. So thank you, Holly. Uh, I also want to add uh, presenters. There's the Q and A tab. You can see if there's a question you see relevant, you have knowledge relevant to answering, feel free to answer in the chat. And I'm just going to hand the talking stick uh, to Bethany. Uh, so I know, Bethany, we had like two questions. So I guess the first question was like, what is your process in developing AI strategies that match national or local strengths and needs? Or and the other one was, uh, what regulations do you have to be aware of when developing AI? Sure. So my background, uh, when you're saying like, what is AI to, to you? Uh, so my background is actually machine learning with robotics. Um, and But more recently, I've been doing a lot more business centric uh, AI, which is um, usually machine learning and data science. So, um, so, so a lot less, you know, in the real world, it's more data driven. Um, and, and I usually try to, to separate them out to decision making and autonomy because uh, those are actually two different things that kind of need to be addressed. So I've been delivering workshops to organizations going into artificial intelligence for the National Research Council um, quite recently. And we, we, we really focus on like, are you talking about decision-making? Are you talking about data? Are you talking about aut automation? Like what exactly are you talking about? So it's a, it's a two-day workshop where we parse out and I actually tell them never to use artificial intelligence like in their internal team it's fine to get money but internally like it doesn't have enough of a definition to really guide how your company is going to move forward um, and so so that's so so it's really clear to identify what you're trying to do um, and then like what do you need to do that do you have enough data do you have enough people do you have enough uh, oversight to, to do those things um, and then honestly a lot of it's communication to the team uh, communication to your customers about, about how you do that. Um, interestingly, uh, because I've, I've been studying a lot about um, bias and uh, exactly all the stuff that Holly was talking about, right? Uh, the, the implementation and the, the adoption of AI has gotten so fast that it goes well beyond people that maybe thought about the affected communities because uh, it is just off the shelf, right? You can do a lot of uh, artificial intelligence off the shelf these days uh, with maybe not thinking about uh, the, the implications of improper models and improper data sets. So, um, so I've been doing a bunch on that. And so in that research, you, um, you'll find that actually not many governments are thinking about this, or they're thinking about it, but they haven't actually set anything up. So right now, if you go and the strategy is like, how are you going to lose people if you do this wrong? I think, uh, especially in the ethics space, right? There's a lot of backlash. 
um, if you are, and actually there was just a case in Italy that um, the company was fined for their algorithm being biased. And it, it wasn't intentional, it was, it was like an Uber, um, but because of the way that the system was being, um, it, it was being biased against a certain kind of customer driving and it was, it was giving them poor ratings uh, based on their behavior. Um, which is interesting and um, a little off-putting <laughs> that, that it was not intentional, but it was a, a side effect of what they had done. And so, so, so governments are coming along. And so in Canada, I know BC government's working on it. The Human Rights Tribunal just made a recommendation saying that your data has to be collected in a certain way. You should be collecting uh, ethnicity data because then you can make sure that it's not being biased on it. And there's recommendations to the BC, uh, to the federal government saying um, that the privacy laws should be expanded to include automated decision-making uh, and pro proper data ethics. It's coming, uh, so you do have to be aware. You can't just like slap AI on and just deploy it uh, because it can be extremely dangerous. Um, so it's a little bit a little bit different than some of the software that's that's being used right now. Right, because this new field is like, okay, what rules or regulations like do we should be aware of that for scenarios we might not know happen yet? You put on the risk manager hat, but <laughs> uh, thank you, Bethany, for sharing. Thank you for listening to the Women Who Code podcast. To find out more about our mission and the work we do across the tech industry, visit our website, womenwhocode.com. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Women Who Code. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel with hundreds of hours of free educational videos. Just go to youtube.com backslash Women Who Code. Thanks again for listening. And remember to subscribe, rate, and comment.